Hello and welcome. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time. This week, we bring you two stories by Stephen Crane, A Dark Brown Dog and The Reluctant Voyagers. The first story is an allegory of the Jim Crow South. For decades after the Civil War, African Americans remained in surf-like conditions, beholden to an employer or landowner, lacking basic rights. White supremacy campaigns surged. Federal protections were established to offer basic civil rights, Amendments 13 through 15, called the Reconstruction Amendments. But it was the state and local Jim Crow laws in the southern states which were the ultimate authority, represented by the father in the story. African Americans' ongoing mistreatment with the promise and hope of a better life is represented by the wife. Younger generation white Southerners with good intentions is represented by the child. History always seems to want to show us how little things have changed. But as the struggle for basic civil rights continues, let this story be a reminder that we must work harder and never give up. The second story is a lighthearted bit of fluff to cheer you up after the first story. And now, A Dark Brown Dog by Stephen Crane. A child was standing on a street corner. He leaned with one shoulder against a high board fence and swayed the other to and fro, the while kicking carelessly at the gravel. Sunshine beat upon the cobbles, and a lazy summer wind raised yellow dust, which trailed in clouds down the avenue. Clattering trucks moved with indistinctness through it. The child stood dreamily gazing. After a time... A little dark brown dog came trotting with an intent air down the sidewalk. A short rope was dragging from his neck. Occasionally he trod upon the end of it and stumbled. He stopped opposite the child, and the two regarded each other. The dog hesitated for a moment, but presently he made some little advances with his tail. The child put out his hand and called him. In an apologetic manner, the dog came close, and the two had an interchange of friendly pattings and waggles. The dog became more enthusiastic with each moment of the interview, until with his gleeful caperings he threatened to overturn the child, whereupon the child lifted his hand and struck the dog a blow upon the head. This thing seemed to overpower and astonish the little dark brown dog, and wounded him to the heart. He sank down in despair at the child's feet, when the blow was repeated, together with an admonition in childish sentences, he turned over on his back and held his paws in a peculiar manner. At the same time, with his ears and eyes, he offered a small prayer to the child. He looked so comical on his back, and holding his paws peculiarly, that the child was greatly amused, and gave him little taps repeatedly to keep him so. But the little dark brown dog took this chastisement in the most serious way, and no doubt considered that he had committed some grave crime, for he wriggled contritely and showed his repentance in every way that was in his power. He pleaded with the child and petitioned him, and offered more prayers. At last the child grew weary of this amusement and turned toward home. The dog was praying at the time. He lay on his back and turned his eyes upon the retreating form. Presently he struggled to his feet and started after the child. 
The latter wandered in a perfunctory way toward his home, stopping at times to investigate various matters. During one of these pauses, he discovered the little dark brown dog, who was following him with the air of a footpad. The child beat his pursuer with a small stick he had found. The dog lay down and prayed until the child had finished and resumed his journey. Then he scrambled erect and took up the pursuit again. On the way to his home, the child turned many times and beat the dog, proclaiming with childish gestures that he held him in contempt as an unimportant dog, with no value save for a moment. For being this quality of animal, the dog apologized and eloquently expressed regret, but he continued stealthily to follow the child. His manner grew so very guilty that he slunk like an assassin. When the child reached his doorstep, the dog was industriously ambling a few yards in the rear. He became so agitated with shame when he again confronted the child that he forgot the dragging rope. He tripped upon it and fell forward. The child sat down on the step, and the two had another interview. During it, the dog greatly exerted himself to please the child. He performed a few gambols with such abandon that the child suddenly saw him to be a valuable thing. He made a swift, avaricious charge and seized the rope. He dragged his captive into a hall and up many long stairways in a dark tenement. The dog made willing efforts, but he could not hobble very skillfully up the stairs because he was very small and soft, and at last the pace of the engrossed child grew so energetic that the dog became panic-stricken. In his mind he was being dragged toward a grim unknown. His eyes grew wild with the terror of it. He began to wiggle his head frantically and to brace his legs. The child redoubled his exertions. They had a battle on the stairs. The child was victorious because he was completely absorbed in his purpose and because the dog was very small. He dragged his acquirement to the door of his home and finally, with triumph, across the threshold. No one was in. The child sat on the floor and made overtures to the dog. These the dog instantly accepted. He beamed with affection upon his new friend. In a short time they were firm and abiding comrades. When the child's family appeared, they made a great row. The dog was examined and commented upon and called names. Scorn was leveled at him from all eyes so that he became much embarrassed and drooped like a scorched plant. But the child went sturdily to the center of the floor and at the top of his voice championed the dog. It happened that he was roaring protestations with his arms clasped about the dog's neck when the father of the family came in from work. The parent demanded to know what the blazes they were making the child howl for. It was explained in many words that the infernal kid wanted to introduce a disreputable dog into the family. A family council was held. On this depended the dog's fate, but he in no way heeded, being busily engaged in chewing the end of the child's dress. The affair was quickly ended. The father of the family, it appears, was in a particularly savage temper that evening, and when he perceived that it would amaze and anger everybody, if such a dog were allowed to remain, he decided that it should be so. The child, crying softly, took his friend off to a retired part of the room to hobnob with him, 
while the father quelled a fierce rebellion of his wife. So it came to pass that the dog was a member of the household. He and the child were associated together at all times, save when the child slept. The child became a guardian and a friend. If the large folk kicked the dog and threw things at him, the child made loud and violent objections. Once, when the child had run, protesting loudly, with tears raining down his face and his arms outstretched, to protect his friend, he had been struck in the head with a very large saucepan from the hand of his father, enraged at some seeming lack of courtesy in the dog. Ever after, the family were careful how they threw things at the dog. Moreover, the latter grew very skillful in avoiding missiles and feet. In a small room containing a stove, a table, a bureau, and some chairs, he would display strategic ability of a high order, dodging, fainting, and scuttling about among the furniture. He would force three or four people armed with brooms, sticks, and handfuls of coal to use all their ingenuity to get in a blow. And even when they did, it was seldom that they could do him a serious injury or leave any imprint. But when the child was present, these scenes did not occur. It came to be recognized that if the dog was molested, the child would burst into sobs, and as the child, when started, was very riotous and practically unquenchable, the dog had therein a safeguard. However, the child could not always be near. At night, when he was asleep, his dark brown friend would raise from some black corner a wild, wailful cry, a song of infinite loneliness and despair, that would go shuddering and sobbing among the buildings of the block and cause people to swear. At these times, the singer would often be chased all over the kitchen and hit with a great variety of articles. Sometimes, too, the child himself used to beat the dog, although it is not known that he ever had what truly could be called a just cause. The dog always accepted these thrashings with an air of admitted guilt. He was too much of a dog to try to look to be a martyr or to plot revenge. He received the blows with deep humility, and furthermore he forgave his friend the moment the child had finished and was ready to caress the child's hand with his little red tongue. When misfortune came upon the child and his troubles overwhelmed him, he would often crawl under the table and lay his small, distressed head on the dog's back. The dog was ever sympathetic. It is not to be supposed that at such times he took occasion to refer to the unjust beatings his friend, when provoked, had administered to him. He did not achieve any notable degree of intimacy with the other members of the family. He had no confidence in them, and the fear that he would express at their casual approach often exasperated them exceedingly. They used to gain a certain satisfaction in underfeeding him, but finally his friend the child grew to watch the matter with some care, and when he forgot it, the dog was often successful in secret for himself. So the dog prospered. He developed a large bark, which came wondrously from such a small rug of a dog. He ceased to howl persistently at night. Sometimes, indeed, in his sleep, he would utter little yells as from pain, but that occurred, no doubt, when in his dreams he encountered huge, flaming dogs who threatened him direfully. His devotion to the child grew until it was a sublime thing. He wagged at his approach. He sank down in despair at his departure. 
he could detect the sound of the child's steps among all the noises of the neighborhood. It was like a calling voice to him. The scene of their companionship was a kingdom governed by this terrible potentate, the child. But neither criticism nor rebellion ever lived for an instant in the heart of the one subject. Down in the mystic hidden fields of his little dog soul bloomed flowers of love and fidelity and perfect faith. The child was in the habit of going on many expeditions to observe strange things in the vicinity. On these occasions his friend usually jogged aimfully along behind. Perhaps, though, he went ahead. This necessitated his turning around every quarter minute to make sure the child was coming. He was filled with a large idea of the importance of these journeys. He would carry himself with such an air. He was proud to be the retainer of so great a monarch. One day, however, the father of the family got quite exceptionally drunk. He came home and held carnival with the cooking utensils, the furniture, and his wife. He was in the midst of this recreation when the child, followed by the dark brown dog, entered the room. They were returning from their voyages. The child's practiced eye instantly noted his father's state. He dived under the table, where experience had taught him was a rather safe place. The dog, lacking skill in such matters, was of course unaware of the true condition of affairs. He looked with interested eyes at his friend's sudden dive. He interpreted it to mean, joyous gamble. He started to patter across the floor to join him. He was the picture of a little dark brown dog en route to a friend. The head of the family saw him at this moment. He gave a huge howl of joy and knocked the dog down with a heavy coffee pot. The dog, yelling in supreme astonishment and fear, writhed to his feet and ran for cover. The man kicked out with a ponderous foot. It caused the dog to swerve as if caught in a tide. A second blow of the coffee pot laid him upon the floor. Here the child, uttering loud cries, came valiantly forth like a knight. The father of the family paid no attention to these calls of the child, but advanced with glee upon the dog. Upon being knocked down twice in swift succession, the latter apparently gave up all hope of escape. He rolled over on his back and held his paws in a peculiar manner. At the same time, with his eyes and ears, he offered up a small prayer. But the father was in a mood for having fun, and it occurred to him that it would be a fine thing to throw the dog out the window. So he reached down and, grabbing the animal by a leg, lifted him, squirming, up. He swung him two or three times hilariously about his head and then flung him with great accuracy through the window. The soaring dog created a surprise in the block. A woman watering plants in an opposite window gave an involuntary shout and dropped a flower pot. A man in another window leaned perilously out to watch the flight of the dog. A woman who had been hanging out clothes in a yard began to caper wildly. Her mouth was filled with clothespins, but her arms gave vent to a sort of exclamation. In appearance, she was like a gagged prisoner. Children ran whooping. The dark brown body crashed in a heap on the roof of a shed five stories below. From thence, it rolled to the pavement of an alleyway. 
the child in the room far above burst into a long, dirge-like cry and toddled hastily out of the room. It took him a long time to reach the alley because his size compelled him to go downstairs backward, one step at a time, and holding with both hands to the step above. When they came for him later, they found him seated by the body of his dark brown friend. And now, The Reluctant Voyagers by Stephen Crane. Chapter One Two men sat by the sea waves. Well, I know I'm not handsome, said one gloomily. He was poking holes in the sand with a discontented cane. He seemed overcome with perspiring discomfort as a man who was resolved to set another man right. Suddenly his mouth turned into a straight line. To be sure you are not, he cried vehemently. You look like thunder. I do not desire to be unpleasant, but I must assure you that your freckled skin continually reminds spectators of white wallpaper with gilt roses on it. The top of your head looks like a little wooden plate. And your figure, heavens! For a time they were silent. They stared at the waves that purred near their feet like sleepy sea kittens. Finally the first man spoke. Well, he said defiantly, what of it? What of what? exploded the other. Why, it means that you'll look like blazes in a bathing suit. They were again silent. The freckled man seemed ashamed. His tall companion glowered at the scenery. I am decided, said the freckled man suddenly. He got boldly up from the sand and strode away. The tall man followed, walking sarcastically and glaring down at the round, resolute figure before him. A bath clerk was looking at the world with superior eyes through a hole in a board. To him, the freckled man made application, waving his hands over his person in illustration of a snug fit. The bath clerk thought profoundly. Eventually, he handed out a blue bundle with an air of having phenomenally solved the freckled man's dimensions. The latter resumed his resolute stride. See here, said the tall man following him. I bet you've got a regular toga, you know. That fella couldn't tell. Yes, he could interrupted the freckled man. I saw correct mathematics in his eyes. Well, supposing he missed your size. Supposing... Tom, again interrupted the other. Produce your proud clothes and we'll go in. The tall man swore bitterly. He went to one of a row of little wooden boxes and shut himself in it. His companion repaired to a similar box. At first, he felt like an opulent monk in a too-small cell, and he turned round two or three times to see if he could. He arrived finally into his bathing dress. Immediately he dropped gasping upon a three-cornered bench. The suit fell in folds about his reclining form. There was silence, save for the caressing calls of the waves without. Then he heard two shoes drop on the floor in one of the little coops. He began to clamor at the boards like a penitent at an unforgiving door. Tom, he called. Tom! A voice of wrath, muffled by cloth, came through the walls. You go to blazes! The freckled man began to groan, taking the occupants of the entire row of coops into his confidence. Stop your noise! angrily cried the tall man from his hidden den. You rented the bathing suit, didn't you? Then? It ain't a bathing suit, shouted the freckled man at the boards. 
It's an auditorium, a ballroom or something. It isn't a bathing suit. The tall man came out of his box. His suit looked like blue skin. He walked with grandeur down the alley between the rows of coops. Stopping in front of his friend's door, he rapped on it with passionate knuckles. Come out of there, you old fool, he said in an enraged whisper. It's only your accursed vanity. Wear it anyhow. What difference does it make? I never saw such a vain old idiot. As he was storming, the door opened, and his friend confronted him. The tall man's legs gave way, and he fell against the opposite door. The freckled man regarded him sternly. You're an ass, he said. His back curved in scorn. He walked majestically down the alley. There was pride in the way his chubby feet patted the boards. The tall man followed weakly, his eyes riveted upon the figure ahead. As a disguise, the freckled man had adopted the stomach of importance. He moved with an air of some sort of procession across a walkboard down some steps and out upon the sand. There was a pug dog and three old women on a bench, a man and a maid with a book and a parasol, a seagull drifting high in the wind, and a distant, tremendous meeting of sea and sky. Down on the wet sand stood a girl being wooed by the breakers. The freckled man moved with stately tread along the beach. The tall man, numb with amazement, came in the rear. They neared the girl. Suddenly the tall man was seized with convulsions. He laughed, and the girl turned her head. She perceived the freckled man in the bathing suit. An expression of wonderment overspread her charming face. It changed in a moment to a pearly smile. This smile seemed to smite the freckled man. He obviously tried to swell and fit his suit. Then he turned a shriveling glance upon his companion and fled up the beach. The tall man ran after him, pursuing with mocking cries that tingled his flesh like stings of insects. He seemed to be trying to lead the way out of the world. But at last he stopped and faced about. "'Tom Sharp,' said he between clenched teeth, "'you are an unutterable wretch!' I could grind your bones under my heel. The tall man was in a trance, with glazed eyes fixed on the bathing dress. He seemed to be murmuring, Oh, good Lord, oh, good Lord, I never saw such a suit. The freckled man made the gesture of an assassin. Tom Sharp, you... The other was still murmuring, Oh, good Lord, I never saw such a suit, I never... The freckled man ran down into the sea. Chapter 2 The cool, swirling waters took his temper from him, and it became a thing that is lost in the ocean. The tall man floundered in, and the two forgot and rollicked in the waves. Had left all save a solitary fisherman under a large hat and three boys in bathing dress, laughing and splashing upon a raft made of old spars. The two men swam softly over the ground swells. The three boys dived from their raft and turned their jolly faces shorewards. It twisted slowly around and around and began to move seaward on some unknown voyage. The freckled man laid his face to the water and swam toward the raft with a practiced stroke. The tall man followed, his bended arm appearing and disappearing with the precision of machinery. The craft crept away, slowly and wearily, as if luring, the little wooden plate on the freckled man's head looked at the shore like a round brown eye, 
but his gaze was fixed on the raft that slyly appeared to be waiting. The tall man used the little wooden plate as a beacon. At length, the freckled man reached the raft and climbed aboard. He lay down on his back and puffed. His bathing dress spread about him like a dead balloon. The tall man came, snorted, shook his tangled locks, and lay down by the side of his companion. They were overcome with a delicious drowsiness. The planks of the raft seemed to fit their tired limbs. They gazed dreamily up into the vast sky of summer. This is great, said the tall man. His companion grunted blissfully. Gentle hands from the sea rocked their craft and lulled them to peace. Lapping waves sang little rippling sea songs about them. The two men issued contented groans. Tom, said the freckled man. What, said the other. This is great. They lay and thought. A fishhawk soaring suddenly turned and darted at the waves. The tall man indolently twisted his head and watched the bird plunge its claws into the water. It heavily arose with a silver gleaming fish. That bird has got his feet wet again. It's a shame, murmured the tall man sleepily. He must suffer from an endless cold in the head. He should wear rubber boots. They'd look great, too. If I was him, I'd... Great Scott! He had partly arisen and was looking at the shore. He began to scream. Ted! Ted! Ted, look! What's the matter? Dreamily spoke the freckled man. You remind me of when I put the birdshot in your leg. He giggled softly. The agitated tall man made a gesture of supreme eloquence. His companion upreared and turned a startled gaze shoreward. Lord! He roared as if stabbed. The land was a long brown streak with a rim of green, in which sparkled the tin roofs of huge hotels. The hands from the sea had pushed them away. The two men sprang erect and did a little dance of perturbation. What shall we do? What shall we do? moaned the freckled man, wriggling frantically in his dead balloon. The changing shore seemed to fascinate the tall man, and for a time he did not speak. Suddenly he concluded his minuet of horror. He wheeled about and faced the freckled man. He elaborately folded his arms. So, he said, in slow, formidable tones, so, this all comes from your cursed vanity, your bathing suit, your idiocy. You have murdered your best friend. He turned away. His companion reeled as if stricken by an unexpected arm. He stretched out his hand. Tom, Tom, wailed he beseechingly. Don't be such a fool. The broad back of his friend was occupied by a contemptuous sneer. Three ships fell off the horizon. Landward, the hues were blending. The whistle of a locomotive sounded from an infinite distance, as if tooting in heaven. Tom, Tom, my dear boy, quavered the freckled man. Don't speak that way to me. Oh, no, of course not, said the other, still facing away and throwing the words over his shoulder. You suppose I'm going to accept all this calmly, don't you? Not make the slightest objection— Make no protest at all, eh? Well, I... began the freckled man. The tall man's wrath suddenly exploded. You've abducted me! That's the whole amount of it! You've abducted me! I ain't, 
protested the freckled man. You must think I'm a fool. The tall man swore, and sitting down dangled his legs angrily in the water. Natural law compelled his companion to occupy the other end of the raft. Over the waters little shoals of fish spluttered, raising tiny tempests. Languid jellyfish floated near, tremulously waving a thousand legs. A row of porpoises trundled along like a procession of cogwheels. The sky became grayed, save where over the land sunset colors were assembling. The two voyagers, back to back, and at either end of the raft, quarreled at length. "'What did you want to follow me for?' demanded the freckled man in a voice of indignation. "'If your figure hadn't been so like a bottle, we wouldn't be here,' replied the tall man. Chapter 3 The fires in the west blazed away, and solemnity spread over the sea. Electric lights began to blink like eyes. Night menaced the voyagers with a dangerous darkness, and fear came to bind their souls together. They huddled frantically in the middle of the raft. "'I feel like a molecule,' said the freckled man in subdued tones. "'I'd give you two dollars for a cigar,' muttered the tall man. A V-shaped flock of ducks flew towards Barnegat, between the voyagers and a remnant of yellow sky. Shadows and winds came from the vanished eastern horizon. "'I think I hear voices,' said the freckled man. "'That Dolly Ramsdale was an awfully nice girl,' said the tall man. When the coldness of the sea night came to them, the freckled man found he could, by a particular movement of his legs and arms, encase himself in his bathing dress. The tall man was compelled to whistle and shiver. As night settled finally over the sea, red and green lights began to dot the blackness. There were mysterious shadows between the waves. "'I see things coming,' murmured the freckled man. "'I wish I hadn't ordered that new dress suit for the hop tomorrow night,' said the tall man reflectively. The sea became uneasy and heaved painfully, like a lost bosom, when little forgotten heart-bells try to chime with a pure sound. The voyagers cringed at magnified foam on distant wave-crests. A moon came and looked at them. "'Somebody's here,' whispered the freckled man. "'I wish I had an almanac,' remarked the tall man, regarding the moon. Presently they fell to staring at the red and green lights that twinkled about them. "'Providence will not leave us,' asserted the freckled man. "'Oh, we'll be picked up shortly. I owe money,' said the tall man. He began to thrum on an imaginary banjo. "'I have heard,' he said suddenly, "'that captains with healthy ships beneath their feet will never turn back after having once started on a voyage. In that case, we will be rescued by some ship bound for the golden seas of the south. Then you'll be up to some of your confounded devilment, and we'll get put off. They'll maroon us. That's what they'll do. They'll maroon us. On an island with palm trees and sun-kissed maidens and all that. Sun-kissed maidens, eh? Great. They'd... He suddenly ceased and turned to stone. At a distance, a great green eye was contemplating the sea-wanderers. They stood up and did another dance. As they watched, the eye grew larger. Directly the form of a phantom-like ship came into view. About the great green eye there bobbed some yellow dots. 
The wanderers could hear a faraway creaking of unseen tackle and flapping of shadowy sails. There came the melody of the waters as the ship's prow thrust its way. The tall man delivered an oration. Ha! he exclaimed. Here come our rescuers, the brave fellows. How I long to take the manly captain by the hand. You will soon see a white boat with a star on its bow drop from the side of yon ship. Kind sailors in blue and white will help us into the boat and conduct our wasted frames to the quarter-deck, where the handsome bearded captain, with gold bands all around, will welcome us. Then, in the hard oak cabin, while the wine gurgles and the Havanas glow, we'll tell our tale of peril and privation. The ship came on like a black hurrying animal with froth-filled maw. The two wanderers stood up and clasped hands. Then they howled out a wild duet that rang over the wastes of sea. The cry seemed to strike the ship. Men with boots on yelled and ran about the deck. They picked up heavy articles and threw them down. They yelled more. After hideous creakings and flappings, the vessel stood still. In the meantime, the wanderers had been chanting their song for help. Out in the blackness they beckoned to the ship and coaxed. A voice came to them. Hello, it said. They puffed out their cheeks and began to shout. Hello, hello, hello. What do you want, said the voice. The two wanderers gazed at each other and sat suddenly down on the raft. Some pall came sweeping over the sky and quenched their stars. But almost the tall man got up and brawled miscellaneous information. He stamped his foot and, frowning into the night, swore threateningly. The vessel seemed fearful of these moaning voices that called from a hidden cavern of the water. And now one voice was filled with menace. A number of men with enormous limbs that threw vast shadows over the sea as the lanterns flickered held a debate and made gestures. Off in the darkness, the tall man began to clamor like a mob. The freckled man sat in astounded silence, with his legs weak. After a time, one of the men of enormous limbs seized a rope that was tugging at the stern and drew a small boat from the shadows. The three giants clambered in and rowed cautiously toward the raft. Silver water flashed in the gloom as the oars dipped. About fifteen feet from the raft, the boat stopped. "'Who are you?' asked a voice. The tall man braced himself and explained. He drew vivid pictures, his twirling fingers illustrating like live brushes. "'Oh!' said the three giants. The voyagers deserted the raft. They looked back, feeling in their hearts a mite of tenderness for the wet planks. Later they wriggled up the side of the vessel and climbed over the railing. On deck they met a man. He held a lantern to their faces. "'Got any chewin' tobacco?' he inquired. "'No,' said the tall man. "'We ain't.' The man had a bronze face and solitary whisker. Peculiar lines about his mouth were shaped into an eternal smile of derision. His feet were bare and clung handily to crevices. Fearful trousers were supported by a piece of suspender that went up the wrong side of his chest and came down the right side of his back, dividing him into triangles. Ezekiel P. Sanford, Captain Schooner Mary Jones, of Nyack, New York, gentlemen, he said. Ah, said the tall man. Delighted, I'm sure. There were a few moments of silence. The giants were hovering in the gloom and staring. 
Suddenly, astonishment exploded the captain. What the devil? he shouted. What the devil you got on? Bathing suits, said the tall man. Chapter 4 The schooner went on. The two voyagers sat down and watched. After a time, they began to shiver. The soft blackness of the summer night passed away, and gray mists writhed over the sea. Soon lights of early dawn went changing across the sky, and the twin beacons on the highlands grew dim and sparkling faintly, as if a monster were dying. The dawn penetrated the marrow of the two men in bathing dress. The captain used to pause opposite them, hitch one hand in his suspender, and laugh. Well, I'll be dog-hanged, he frequently said. The tall man grew furious. He snarled in a mad undertone to his companion. This rescue ain't right. If I had known... He suddenly paused, transfixed by the captain's suspender. It's going to break, he cried in an ecstatic whisper. His eyes grew large with excitement as he watched the captain laugh. It'll break in a minute, sure. But the commander of the schooner recovered and invited them to drink and eat. They followed him along the deck and fell down a square black hole into the cabin. It was a little den with walls of a vanished whiteness. A lamp shed an orange light. In a sort of recess, two little beds were hiding. A wooden table, immovable, as if the craft had been builded around it, sat in the middle of the floor. Overhead, the square hole was studded with a dozen stars. A foot-worn ladder led to the heavens. The captain produced ponderous crackers and some cold, broiled ham. Then he vanished in the firmament like a fantastic comet. The freckled man sat quite contentedly like a stout squaw in a blanket. The tall man walked about the cabin and sniffed. He was angered at the crudeness of the rescue, and his shrinking clothes made him feel too large. He contemplated his unhappy state. Suddenly, he broke out. I won't stand this, I tell you. Heavens and earth, look at the... <sighs> Say, what in the blazes did you want to get me in this thing for anyhow? You're a fine old duffer you are, look at that ham! The freckled man grunted. He seemed somewhat blissful. He was seated upon a bench, comfortably enwrapped in his bathing dress. The tall man stormed about the cabin. This is an outrage. I'll see the captain. I'll tell him what I think of... He was interrupted by a pair of legs that appeared among the stars. The captain came down the ladder. He brought a coffee pot from the sky. The tall man bristled forward. He was going to denounce everything. The captain was intent upon the coffee pot, balancing it carefully, and leaving his unguided feet to find the steps of the ladder. But the wrath of the tall man faded. He twirled his fingers in excitement and renewed his ecstatic whisperings to the freckled man. It's going to break. Look, quick look. It'll break in a minute. He was transfixed with interest, forgetting his wrongs in staring at the perilous passage. But the captain arrived on the floor with triumphant suspenders. Well, said he, after you have eat, maybe you'd like to sleep some. If so, you can sleep on them beds. The tall man made no reply, save in a strained undertone. It'll break in a minute. Look, Ted, look quick. The freckled man glanced in a little bed on which were heaped boots and oilskins. He made a courteous gesture. My dear sir, we could not think of depriving you of your beds. No, indeed. 
Just a couple of blankets if you have them, and we'll sleep very comfortable on these benches. The captain protested, politely twisting his back and bobbing his head. The suspenders tugged and creaked. The tall man partially suppressed a cry and took a step forward. The freckled man was sleepily insistent, and shortly the captain gave over his deprecatory contortions. He fetched a pink quilt with yellow dots on it to the freckled man, and a black one with red roses on it to the tall man. Again he vanished in the firmament. The tall man gazed until the last remnant of trousers disappeared from the sky. Then he wrapped himself up in his quilt and lay down. The freckled man was puffing contentedly, swathed like an infant. The yellow polka dots rose and fell on the vast pink of his chest. The wanderers slept. In the quiet could be heard the groans of timbers as the sea seemed to crunch them together. The lapping of water along the vessel's side seemed like gaspings. A hundred spirits of the wind had got their wings entangled in the rigging, and in soft voices were pleading to be loosened. The freckled man was awakened by a foreign nose. He opened his eyes and saw his companion standing by his couch. His comrade's face was wan with suffering. His eyes glowed in the darkness. He raised his arms, spreading them out like a clergyman at a grave. He groaned deep in his chest. "'Good Lord!' yelled the freckled man, starting up. "'Tom! Tom, what's the matter?' The tall man spoke in a fearful tone. "'To New York!' he said. "'To New York in our bathing suits!' The freckled man sank back. The shadows of the cabin threw mysteries about the figure of the tall man, arrayed like some ancient and potent astrologer in the black quilt with the red roses on it. Chapter 5 Directly the tall man went and lay down and began to groan. The freckled man felt the miseries of the world upon him. He grew angry at the tall man awakening him. They quarreled. Well, said the tall man, finally, we're in a fix. I know that, said the other sharply. They regarded the ceiling in silence. What in the thunder are we going to do? demanded the tall man after a time. His companion was still silent. Say, he repeated angrily, what in the thunder are we going to do? I'm sure I don't know, said the freckled man in a dismal voice. Well, think of something, roared the other. Think of something, you old fool. You don't want to make any more idiots of yourself, do you? I ain't made an idiot of myself. Well, think. Know anybody in the city? I know a fellow up in Harlem, said the freckled man. You know a fellow up in Harlem, howled the tall man. Up in Harlem? How the dickens are we to... Say, you're crazy. Well, we could take a cab, cried the other, waxing indignation. The tall man grew suddenly calm. Do you know anyone else? he asked measuredly. I know another fellow somewhere on Park Place. Somewhere on Park Place, repeated the tall man in an unnatural manner. Somewhere on Park Place. With an air of sublime resignation, he turned to face the wall. The freckled man sat erect and frowned in the direction of his companion. Well now, I suppose you're going to soak. You make me ill. It's the best we can do, ain't it? Hire a cab and go look that fellow up on Park. 
What's that? You can't afford it? What nonsense! You are getting... Oh, well, maybe we can beg some clothes of the captain, eh? Did I see him? Certainly I saw him. Yes, it is improbable that a man who wears trousers like that can have clothes to lend. No, I won't wear oilskins in a southwestern. To Athens? Of course not. I don't know where it is, do you? I thought not. With all your grumbling about other people, you never know anything important yourself. What? Broadway? I'll be hanged first. We can get off at Harlem. Man alive. There are no cabs in Harlem? I don't think we can bribe a sailor to take us ashore and bring a cab to the dock. For the very simple reason that we have nothing to bribe him with. What? No, of course not. See here, Tom Sharp. Don't you swear at me like that. I won't have it. What's that? I ain't either. I ain't. What? I am not. It's no such thing. I ain't. I've got more than you have anyway. Well, you ain't doing anything so very brilliant yourself. Just lying there cussing. At length, the tall man feigned prodigiously to snore. The freckled man thought with such vigor that he fell asleep. After a time, he dreamed that he was in a forest where bass drums grew on trees. There came a strong wind that banged the fruit about like empty pods. A frightful din was in his ears. He awoke to find the captain of the schooner standing over him. We're in New York now, said the captain, raising his voice above the thumping and banging that was being done on deck. Now I suppose you fellers are want to go ashore. He chuckled in an exasperated manner. Just sing out when you want to go, he added, leering at the freckled man. The tall man awoke, came over, and grasped the captain by the throat. If you laugh again, I'll kill you, he said. The captain gurgled and waved his legs and arms. In the first place, the tall man continued, you rescued us in a deucedly shabby manner. It makes me ill to think of it. I've a mind to mop you round just for that. In the second place, your vessel is bound for Athens, New York, and there's no sense in it. Now will you or will you not turn this ship about and take us back where our clothes are, or to Philadelphia, where we belong? He furiously shook the captain. Then he eased his grip and awaited a reply. I can't, yelled the captain. I can't. This vessel don't belong to me. I've got to... Well then, interrupted the tall man, can you lend us some clothes? Ain't got none, replied the captain promptly. His face was red and his eyes were glaring. Well then, said the tall man, can you lend us some money? Ain't got none, replied the captain promptly. Something overcame him and he laughed. Thunderation, roared the tall man. He seized the captain who began to have wriggling contortions. The tall man kneaded him as if he were biscuits. You infernal scoundrel, he bellowed. This whole affair is some wretched plot and you are in it. I am about to kill you. The solitary whisker of the captain did aerobatic feats like a strange demon upon his chin. His eyes stood perilously from his head. The suspender wheezed and tugged like a tackle of a sail. Suddenly, the tall man released his hold. Great expectancy sat upon his features. It's going to break, he cried, rubbing his hands. But the captain howled and vanished in the sky.
The freckled man then came forward. He appeared filled with sarcasm. So, said he, so you've settled the matter. The captain is the only man in the world who can help us, and I dare say he'll do anything he can now. That's all right, said the tall man. If you don't like the way I run things, you shouldn't have come on this trip at all. They had another quarrel. At the end of it, they went on deck. The captain stood at the stern, addressing the bow with opprobrious language. When he perceived the voyagers, he began to fling his fists about in the air. I'm going to put ye off, he yelled. The wanderers stared at each other. Hmm, said the tall man. The freckled man looked at his companion. He's going to put us off, you see, he said complacently. The tall man began to walk about and move his shoulders. I'd like to see you do it, he said defiantly. The captain tugged at a rope. A boat came at his bidding. I'd like to see you do it, the tall man repeated continually. An imperturbable man in rubber boots climbed down in the boat and seized the oars. The captain motioned downward. His whisker had a triumphant appearance. The two wanderers looked at the boat. I guess we'll have to get in, murmured the freckled man. The tall man was standing like a granite column. I won't, he said. I won't. I don't care what you do, but I won't. Well, but, epostulated the other. They held a furious debate. In the meantime, the captain was darting about making sinister gestures, but the back of the tall man held him at bay. The crew, much depleted by the departure of the imperturbable man into the boat, looked on from the bow. You're a fool! The freckled man concluded his argument. So? inquired the tall man, highly exasperated. So? Well, if you think you're so bright, we'll go in the boat, and then you'll see! He climbed down into the craft and seated himself in an ominous manner at the stern. You'll see, he said to his companion, as the latter floundered heavily down. You'll see! The man in rubber boots calmly rowed the boat toward the shore. As they went, the captain leaned over the railing and laughed. The freckled man was seated very victoriously. Well, wasn't this the right thing after all? He inquired in a pleasant voice. The tall man made no reply. Chapter 6 As they neared the dock, something seemed suddenly to occur to the freckled man. Good heavens, he murmured. He stared at the approaching shore. My, what a plight, Tommy, he quavered. Do you think so? spoke up the tall man. Why, I really thought you liked it. He laughed in a hard voice. Lord, what a figure you'll cut. This laugh jarred the freckled man's soul. He became mad. Thunderation, turn the boat around, he roared. Turn her around, quick. Man alive, we can't. Turn her around, you hear? The tall man in the stern gazed at his companion with glowing eyes. Certainly not, he said. We're going on. You insisted upon it. He began to prod his companion with words. The freckled man stood up and waved his arms. Sit down, said the tall man. You'll tip the boat over. The other man began to shout. Sit down, said the tall man again. Words bubbled from the freckled man's mouth. There was a little torrent of sentences that almost choked him, and he protested passionately with his hands. But the boat went on to the shadow of the dock. The tall man was intent upon balancing it as it rocked dangerously during his comrade's oration. 
Sit down, he continually repeated. I won't, raged the freckled man. I won't do anything. The boat wobbled with these words. Say, he continued addressing the oarsman, just turn the boat around, will you? Where in the thunder are you taking us to anyhow? The oarsman looked at the sky and thought. Finally, he spoke. I'm doing what the captain said. Well, what in the blazes do I care what the captain said? demanded the freckled man. He took a violent step. You just turn this round or... The small craft reeled. Over one side, water came flashing in. The freckled man cried out in fear and gave a jump to the other side. The tall man roared orders, and the oarsman made efforts. The boat acted for a moment like an animal on a slackened wire. Then it upset. Sit down, said the tall man in a final roar as he was plunged into the water. The oarsman dropped his oars to grapple with the gunwale. He went down, saying unknown words. The freckled man's explanation or apology was strangled by the water. Two or three tugs let off whistles of astonishment and continued on their paths. A man dozing on a dock aroused and began to caper. The passengers on a ferryboat all ran to the near railing. A miraculous person in a small boat was bobbing on the waves near the piers. He sculled hastily toward the scene. It was a whirl of water in the midst of which the dark bottom of the boat appeared whale-like. Two heads suddenly came up. Eight-thirty-nine, said the freckled man chokingly. That's it, eight-thirty-nine. What is, said the tall man. That's the number of that feller on Park Avenue I just remembered. You're the bloominist, the tall man said. Wasn't my fault, interrupted his companion. If you hadn't... He tried to gesticulate, but one hand held to the keel of the boat, and the other was supporting the form of the oarsman, the latter had fought a battle with his immense rubber boots and had been conquered. The rescuers in the other small boat came fiercely. As his craft glided up, he reached out and grasped the tall man by the collar and dragged him into the boat, interrupting what was, under the circumstances, a very brilliant flow of rhetoric directed at the freckled man. The oarsman of the wrecked craft was taken tenderly over the gunwale and laid in the bottom of the boat. Puffing and blowing, the freckled man climbed in. "'You'll upset this one before we can get ashore,' the other voyager remarked. As they turned toward the land, they saw the nearest dock was lined with people. The freckled man gave a little moan. But the staring eyes of the crowd were fixed on the limp form of the man in rubber boots. A hundred hands reached down to help lift the body up. On the dock, some men grabbed it and began to beat it and roll it. A policeman tossed the spectators about. Each individual in the heaving crowd sought to fasten his eyes on the blue-tinted face of the man in the rubber boots. They surged to and fro, while the policeman beat them indiscriminately. The wanderers came modestly up the dock and gazed shrinkingly at the throng. They stood for a moment, holding their breath to see the first finger of amazement leveled at them but the crowd bended and surged in absorbing anxiety to view the man in the rubber boots, whose face fascinated them. The sea-wanderers were as though they were not there. They stood without the jam and whispered hurriedly. Eight-thirty-nine, said the freckled man. All right, said the tall man. Under the pommeling hands, the oarsman showed signs of life. The voyagers watched him make a protesting kick at the leg of the crowd, 
the while uttering angry groans. He's better, said the tall man softly. Let's make off. Together they stole noiselessly up the dock. Directly in front of it they found a row of six cabs. The tall man climbed into the cab. Come in here, he said to his companion. The freckled man climbed in, and the tall man reached over and pulled the door shut. Then he put his head out the window. Driver, he roared sternly. 839 Park Place and quick. The driver looked down and met the eyes of the tall man. Eh? Oh, 839 Park Place? Yes, sir. He reluctantly gave his horse a clump on the back. As the conveyance rattled off, the wanderers huddled back among the dingy cushions and heaved great breaths of relief. Well, it's all over, said the freckled man finally. We're about out of it, and quicker than I expected, much quicker. It looked to me sometimes that we were doomed. I am thankful to find it not so. I am rejoiced, and I hope and trust that you, well, I don't wish to, Perhaps it is not the proper time to—that is, I don't wish to intrude a moral at an inopportune moment. But, my dear fellow, I think the time is ripe to point out to you that your obstinacy, your selfishness, your villainous temper, and your various other faults can make it just as unpleasant for your own self, my dear boy, as they frequently do for other people. You can see what you brought us to— and I most certainly hope, my dear, dear fellow, that I shall soon see those signs in you which shall lead me to believe that you have become a wiser man. And there's our stories for this evening. I hope you enjoyed A Dark Brown Dog and The Reluctant Voyagers by Stephen Crane. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time.